It's a return to the 1980s here on Geekiest Show Ever, number 17. Me, Tim Robertson, David Cohen, Guy Searle, and Mark Rudd, we're going to talk about our favorite and least favorite tech products from the 1980s. Kick back and enjoy. All right, guys, it's my favorite Thursday of the week. Actually, I think how there's many, only... How many are there? Yeah. Um, hmm. You know, Tuesdays starts with a T, so I count that one a lot, too. So Yeah, but there's no H. That's true. Well, well, this is my favorite Thursday of the month. Well, no, there's four of them, and I like the other three just as equally well. Well, I guess I'm just oh. screwed, aren't I? Yeah, Stop pretty thinking. much. You just like Thursdays. That's right. So the idea for the show this week is talking about our favorite and least favorite tech products from the 1980s and what better way to start the show than with a little bit of Bon Jovi I mean isn't that he I know Bon Jovi still sells some records but let's be honest Bon Jovi he was the 1980s yeah 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 they uh, as a group they uh, they didn't really last much longer as far as you know being a big hit maker say past like the mid 90s at best Runaway, man. I, I well, yeah, that was like what eighty three. Yeah. yeah, they they don't play Runaway any of those tracks from those early eighties tracks anymore. No, never. It's like Runaway never existed. They just I, kind of seem to be. I saw them in concert last year, and they seem to be a bit ashamed of the early eighties. Well, I I know that Runaway was never actually a Bon Jovi song. It was a cover that they did. Somebody else wrote it. And they uh, did, yeah, and and that was like the the EP, and it wasn't. My understanding, and I could be wrong, my understanding was that the, it was only John Bon Jovi singing that, and the rest of the band wasn't the Bon Jovi that, you know, hit it big. Mm. Yeah. So, anyways, who cares? <laughs> we'll probably get flame mail. No, that was the Bon Jovi. You're completely... Ricky Sambora actually wrote that song one night. <laughs> who cares? While he was dreaming of Heather Locklear. Yeah, who cares? We don't care. Um... You know, of course, the 80s probably isn't well known now for the technical innovations that we enjoy here in the 21st century. But there was a lot of really cool stuff that happened in the 80s that the stuff that we're using today, that's where its roots came from, the 1980s or the 1970s. The the, the 80s was really when everyone started getting that big spike in disposable income that meant that we could start buying gadgets yeah they didn't have that in the 70s no they yeah i mean the computer revolution sort of started from the mid 70s but but that was a hobby at that point it was a hobby and not only that they were fairly unaffordable it was really the 80s when all of a sudden you know real mass market consumer electronics took off the japanese really started churning the stuff out um you know the video we had the video games revolution in the beginning of the 80s well the se- end of the 70s really i mean the well, the atari 70 uh, 2677 so yeah but it but it was like i mean there was the big crash in what 83 84 yep um of the home video game market and that's when the arcades really came to the fore mm. so it was really when it all started to happen the beginning of the 80s beginning of the 80s is when we got the the technical revolution that we're enjoying today yeah. I agree. That's that was the genesis of of what we're doing online now. What we're doing with our computers, it all started in the 80s. And some people could say that it really started with Apple and the graphical user interface in 1984. Well, that, in 1983 if you want to count the Lisa. Yeah, but nobody does. Um, 
And but of I think course, the microprocessor miniaturization and, and, and the growth in that industry really began to kind of filter down to, you know, smaller electronics. And it became affordable be for, for people. Right. Yeah, yeah it, was, exactly. it was much more affordable. Probably for me, um, photography became inexpensive to the point where the average person could kind of pick it up as a hobby. Before that, it was a very expensive hobby. Developing yeah. film was hugely expensive, and that really dropped in price in the 80s. Um, music, you know, of course, they had music before. Let's not kid ourselves. But portable music really hit it big in the 80s. I mean, you had the Walkmans, you had the boom boxes, you had the beginning of the loud car stereos. Uh, you had a lot of stuff coming to the forefront in the 80s. And for good or, or bad... CDs, for that matter. CDs first came out in the 1980s, absolutely. I remember my first CD player, and I'm sure you guys did too. Um, and it was hugely expensive, kind of like Blu-ray is today. It's just it, most people didn't jump on it right away. Right. And I don't know. It's it's a lot of things happened in the '80s. In fact, you know, if you look at the big bands that are still around today, they all got their start in the either the late '70s or the early '80s. U2, Madonna, you know, groups like that. Um, and there seems to be a really big nostalgic push the last year or two for the 80s. And I think that's probably because people our age or in our age groups. Yeah, we're starting to, or you guys anyway, I was more 60s and 70s. But, you know, starting to, to come into their own, there's, you know, you guys are starting to come into your 40s and your, your peak earning years. So, you know, everybody wants to have that piece of the pie. And I think people start tend to look back on their youth. I mean, for me, and I've said this on the show before, in 1980, I was 10. In 1990, I was 20. So my formative years really were the 1980s. Yeah, same for me. And I, it, it leaves a, an impact. And you kind of start listening to the newer music nowadays, and you, you, long, you long for what you had before. And right now, everybody has an iPod or an iPhone, and they're listening to their music that way. But... David, people like us, we were listening to our music portably back then. Not the huge libraries, but when it gets right down to it, you had a pair of headphones on and you could walk around and listen to your music. Mixtape. Right. You could get a mixtape. Mm. Yeah, I, I used to sit. Uh, I had. I had a. It wasn't a stereo. It was like, it was like a kind of like boombox. And I used to sit listening to the uh, the chart show every weekend and recording all the favorite songs onto onto a tape that I would listen through the week and then do the same thing, you know, every weekend. And um, that was how I kept up with the music. That's yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people did that in the eighties. You know, yeah, I had I had a tape. group of friends, and none of us could afford to go out and buy every cassette or album that came out, or heaven forbid, CD. Yeah. But there was enough of us that you buy one and then you buy another one and then you back there, you buy this. And then we would simply make mixtapes. We'd take the best songs off of those albums and pass them around to each other. And that's kind of, you know, the precursor to the playlist. Of course, people in the seventies could say, well, we used to do that with real to real. Well, yeah, but real to real isn't exactly very portable. No, but I mean, at least the mixtape concept. The mixtape right. really came into being in the 70s. Yeah, it was with really the real 70s more phenomenal. Kind of transitioning from 8-track, you know, and then uh, it was Well, 8-track you couldn't more... record too. I mean, no. it was real to well, real. Well, you could. There there were there were 8-track recorders, but but they know, weren't prevalent. Awesome. Yeah, they weren't prevalent. So the 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 cassette recorder and the ability to have and you could buy a real cheap cassette recorder. I can remember 
back in the 70s uh, with my buddies, you know, we had one of those real, you know, dinosaur-looking huge recorders that you'd record everything on. And sure. then, of course, you'd record, we would record songs off the radio, you know, just put it up to the radio and record, and then we'd play it back for ourselves. And then, of course, you grow, and you then start hooking up to your stereo equipment and recording that way. So it just kind of evolved until you get to the 80s, and, you know, think the digital age begins to kind of take shape, and then... You know, our recording apparatus begins to change and get a little bit better. We're working and we've got money, so everything kind of grows. You know, nowadays it's it's real easy to make mixtapes. It's also fairly simple to mash up different songs. Mix mix CDs. Oh, mix CDs, absolutely. But I remember back in the 80s that I, I got really fancy for a while there. A friend of mine named Troy and I, we'd put our cassette tapes together. We actually had three all together. And two cassette tapes would uh, play music, and then we would record on the other one. And we actually went through a realistic (laughs) three-channel mix board. And so we could adjust the volumes going into the tape recorder. And, I mean, we did just really crazy stuff. Like, uh, we we took music or sounds from movies, especially war movies, and Mm -hmm. we would blend them in with, like, a Pink Floyd song. Um, early mashups early mashups and it was a lot of fun it was a lot more work i mean we would have extensive lists of okay at at exactly this point on the counter because you remember you'd have those little three digit counters on the cassette decks exactly at 27 cue this one up to this volume (laughs) i mean and it was it was it worked i mean i wish i still had those because maybe i was i'm romanticizing it a little bit much but oh maybe you know, it worked, and that's why that I think I like a lot of these mashups that I listen to. I search out mashups. You know, I find them, and I download them, and I really enjoy them, even if it's music that I don't particularly care for. Um, like, there's this one from uh, DJ Ear something, and he did a mashup of all the top 25 songs of 2008, and it's wow. it's brilliant. I mean, it's just yeah. I've heard that one. It is amazing. And I don't like half the songs that's that he used, but in this context, I loved it. I mean, the I way, the way he cut it, huh? Oh, it's it's not just cutting it. I mean, it's it's full DJ on. I mean, it's it's brilliant. I I can't do something like that. At least not with the equipment the, the, that I have. The downside of the accessibility that digital music has given us is, of course, we've also got lawsuits from the RIAA. Back then, you know, the the record industry used to make a bit of noise about blank tapes and the potential for copying music, but not really. Um, But you could do that sort of stuff in your own home and at least never worry that you were going to get a lawsuit slapped on you for file sharing, which is... Well, yeah, but that was the whole thing, though. There there really wasn't much in the way of file sharing. It was, you know, maybe a few people swapping songs among each other, but... There was a heck of a lot of of trading in music on tape. Well, sure, sure, but at the same time, it wasn't like, okay, I've got this one song and I've put it on the internet and 40,000 people can now download it. You know, it was nothing like that. Yeah, but Uh, there was a record store here in, in my hometown called the Rock Cafe. No relation to the crappy restaurants around. And the Rock Cafe was a combination of a record store and a head shop. And I'm not going to explain a head shop if you don't know what it is. <laughs> no, I, I, know I have you, an idea yeah. what it might be. And, yeah, I know what it is. And do you know what a head shop is, David? No. Okay, because you're from the UK. I'll explain it to you. It's basically marijuana paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
And um, so we that used to have it a place was a, called Spencer's that was like yeah. That. We also had a place called Crazy Larry's, and it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's Black crazy. posters, man. Absolutely. There. So the Rock Cafe, I used to go into <laughs> all the time, and that's where I would get my music. And I went in there enough times where they knew who I was. So when I wasn't finding anything that I particularly wanted to buy. Now, wait, are we talking about music or the headshot? Music. I didn't okay. I didn't okay. bother with the headshot stuff. I mean, I okay. tried oh. marijuana when I was a young teenager, but I didn't like it, and I never went back to it. So I never oh. would have wasted my money on that crap. Of course you wouldn't. No, I, seriously, I, I didn't I know, like it. I know, I know, I know. I'm just pulling your leg. And, uh, and I don't say that because this is going live or, you know, people all over the world are going to hear, including law enforcement. I just didn't like it. I didn't like the, the feeling it gave me. I didn't like not being in control. I hated it. Every time I would get high... I would just thank God, I just want to come down. Or I'd get paranoid and go, this is how I'm going to be the rest of my life. I'm screwed. <laughs> so, yeah, any... me too, Tim. I, I only tried it that once to, also. That, that one time. And yeah, then uh, they got used to seeing me, so they knew I wasn't you know, a narc or whatever. And so they started offering to let me see the other music they sold. And the other music they sold <laughs> was the all... In the Actually, it was in the back room. But it was all bootleg stuff. It was rare recordings. It was oh, oh live concert stuff. Live concert stuff, and yeah. you know they they charged an arm and a leg. I'm talking for a, a 90 minute blanked cassette, and the B side was empty. It was blank. It was just one side. Uh, we're talking like forty dollars for a Pink Floyd concert, but they would only sell the stuff that was in really high quality. It wasn't just you know some guy's portable cassette recorder stuck in his pocket. Yeah, I had a bootleg uh, live Zeppelin album. Do you think Do you think fabulous. bootlegs are popular anymore at all? I mean, with file sharing, I don't know, David. Do you think bootlegs are does it even exist anymore? I, I'm I'm pretty sure it does. I think it's it's. I mean, those were always made. The best ones were made by sure. um, knowing somebody who was on the crew who would hook a tape recorder into the directly into a feed off the soundboard. Yeah. And I think I think that's still done. But obviously, it's a lot cleaner now because it's a digital copy, so yeah, it's going to sound a lot better. And also, I think um, with most music, you know, if you don't want to pay for it, you can essentially get it for free. That a lot of that has gone underground. It's it's not as it's not as popular as it as it probably once was. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, if you if you go on YouTube, if you look for any particular song, you'll normally find one or two videos of it where somebody shot it in the crowd at a concert. Yeah, so but that's going to sound still, like crap. Well, it's, yeah, but the point is, is it is if that's you wanted. Yeah, that's bootlegging. If you wanted a bootleg, you didn't really care what it sounded like. The fact is, you wanted to hear what it what what it was like if you were there live. Exactly. Um, and I think YouTube is just a modern version of that. Now, I, I'll tell you about a website that you guys may not know about. And I know we're kind of getting off topic, but that's okay. That's what the show's all about, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll, that never happens. We'll get back to our 80s picks here in a second. Um, I like listening to live music. And uh, I went to a lot of concerts in the 80s. I mean, a lot of concerts. I'm surprised my hearing is still perfect because I went. I, I listened to a lot of music. And uh, maybe four or five years ago, I signed up as a user on this site, and I get emails probably once a month from them with the latest performers and performances. And it's called Wolfgang's Vault. Oh, yeah, I get that. And it's simply fantastic. Great stuff on there. I, I'm looking at it right now, and uh, it has the best of the Wolfgang's Vault, 
most listens to on concert. Now these are all live recordings and they're pretty selective on what they pick to put up there. So if it sounds like crap, they're not going to put it up there. They got Bob Dylan from 74, the Blues Brothers, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, the Rolling Stones, uh, Genesis from 81. Uh, right the, on. Bruce Springsteen, 78. I mean, just, Zappa. and if you're talking about the 80s like we are, there's a lot of stuff from the 80s up there as well. Um, I think they've got a U2 concert from the 80s up there. Uh, in fact, I just went there and yep, sure enough. Uh, they've got quite a few of them, 83, 81, 81, 87. I mean, just all so kinds of stuff. So do they do stuff. this in conjunction with the artists? or what? You know, I don't know how that works because this is all obviously bootleg stuff. But Well, no, they charge for it, and it goes, it, it, you know, the money's got to go back to somebody somewhere. That's true. So, you know, I imagine that uh, they've got some kind of exclusive with some of the various, you know, studios and saying, okay, well, we've got this stuff, and you know, we're going to sell it, and we're going to give you X number of percent of you know whatever it is, because I think this is a I think this is a U.S. based uh, site. So yes, it's not it is. free. It's not free. You have no, to pay. it is. Oh, no, no, it no, is no, no. free. It's free for well, you, the user. But they sell stuff up there that you might want, like concert photos or posters from okay. that. You know, um, this the stuff. Oh, you, so can, straight, you can actually you can actually buy the as well. So well. Yeah, that's right. They stream the concerts, but you have to pay if you want to download them. Yes, like but of course, if, if you're on a Mac and you happen to have a program called, I don't know, Audio Hijack Pro, you can get some really great concerts. <laughs> um, but we would never do that. I just launched no. my iTunes, and let's see if it's trying to sync my Apple TV, which is never a good thing. Uh, stop. Okay, there we go. Let me see if this works again, because it says, available on the iPhone App Store. And I'm kind of curious on what that is. And sure enough, guy, they have a free app called the Concert Vault. Oh, really? On, yep. on In the iTunes store for yep. Wolfgang's Vault? Yep. And it's only uh, 0.6 megabytes. So obviously... What's, what's that What's that called again? Uh, Wolfgang's Vault. No, no. I mean the, the app. Wolfgang's Vault. <laughs> <laughs> Just you can, you can ask me three more times and go. I'll say the same thing. <laughs> Go to their so page, it's guy. Wolfgang's vault, then. Yes. Guy, just okay. go to their page. There's a link directly on there for the for the app store. It sure is. Oh, I It'll see it. Yeah, yeah. Straight to it. And I just downloaded it, and I'll test that. And uh, if I remember, I'll talk about it on the next show. Yeah, because, it's a free app too. Yeah, it's free, well, and cool. it'll, if it gives me a really good interface to some of these really cool concerts, I'm into that. But they have 2,950 concerts. 256 interviews and i don't know what the downloads are 380 downloads but it's definitely a site if you're into vintage type music there's some newer stuff up there as well but I, they've got david bowie eric clapton yeah, the yeah. tubes uh they got uh, mc5 mc5 that you know there's some guys from your neck of the woods tim yep yeah it's Pink, just all kinds Pink of Floyd. stuff um what was uh, it i was into um zeppelin an 80s phase, and I wanted to hear some uh, a flock of seagulls, and I think that's how I found them originally. And they've actually got two concerts from both from '83 of the, a flock of seagulls. Right on. And uh, it was just fantastic listening to it. It was like going back in time. You know, they're talking about playing their new single, and of course, it's old music now, but it's just it's amazing. So it's a geeky thing. We could talk about that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Music is always a, an appropriate geeky topic. Yeah, and, and Wolfgang's Vault is just, it, it's, it's an incredible site. If it's you fantastic. Like, if, yeah, if, if you like uh, older music and you want to see what these guys were like or, and hear what they were like in their prime, this is the place to go. Like, you know, you see Jimmy Page now and, you know, he's he's in his late 60s and, you know, his, his best days are pretty much behind him. But... To, to be able to see a recording or hear either see or, or hear a recording of Zeppelin from like 72, Back 73. In the day. Yeah, when, when they were just, you know, they the were just. song remains the same time. Well, even even before then. Even before then. Yeah, you can you yeah. can listen to some of these concerts and it they were recorded before the band hit it big, like U2. I mean, U2 wasn't big in 82, 83. No, my and... wife saw them at uh, William and Mary. So, anyways, let's get over to uh, the topic of the week, and it's our favorite and, if we get to it, our least favorite tech products from the 1980s. Cool. And uh, I'll start off. Usually, I kind of let you guys go first, and then I try to pretend that I'm important and go last. But not this time. Yeah. <laughs> not this time. Um, I'm going to pull up my email program to get the exact model number because I don't want to mess that up. Do, 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 do. I've got the picture. Now, for those listening, this is going to be an enhanced podcast, uh, most likely. <laughs> That's our goal. Maybe. Maybe it should be. Um, and I already messed that up because I put the MyMac podcast logo in there, so I'm going to have to change that. Um, so you'll be able to see a picture of the products that we're talking about if you look at your iPod or your iPhone. And uh, this is a new experiment for us because, I mean, it's a lot of work. Uh, Panasonic. Okay, I found mine. All right. Um, I Like I've said many times, I've always been into music. Um, and, you know, I started off with a, a small cassette player that, like you, David, I would sit in front of a computer, in front of the uh, speaker... And literally record music that way and listen to it back. And, of course, it sounded horrible. Of course, like everyone else here, I got into cassette tapes. And I wanted something to listen to my cassette tapes on. And for Christmas one year, I've got a Panasonic boombox. It's the RX-C39 Panasonic boombox. I loved this boombox. And it eventually broke on me. The handle was really brittle and it broke. And it fell on the ground and uh, didn't smash, and it still worked for a while, but I couldn't carry it around with me. And the whole point of a boombox in the 80s was to carry it with you. <laughs> you know, you, you want to take your music with you. And I did have headphones. I didn't blast my, my boombox. My, if my parents would have found out I was blasting my boombox, I would have gotten in trouble. But, you know, th that's what I did. And there was something about this boombox that really stuck with me all these years. I, of course, did not remember that it was made by Panasonic, let alone the model number. But I had been looking on eBay for, I don't know, a couple of years on, for a couple of different things that I wanted to bring forward into my life now that I had as a child or as a teen. And I came across the boombox and uh, I bought it. So I have that boombox again. It's in near perfect condition. Cool. And uh, I love it. You know, it still sounds fairly decent today. Now, now, I, it has the, look, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, looking at this one, I mean, I remember when I spent many, many an hour looking at the different models that are available before I got one. And um, what's nice about this one, this is one of the more upmarket ones where the speakers were detachable. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Time. In fact, I used to, because my bedroom was right next to my parents' bedroom, and I was an only child. So if I wanted to listen to music at night when my parents were sleeping, I had to put headphones on. Now, the headphones I had sucked. And I wanted the sound to... Um, surround, I wanted to feel the music, you know what I mean? So with this boombox, I could take the speakers off, and I would put each speaker laying on my bed right next to my ear. And wow. I would turn it up enough so it sounded extremely loud to me. But you couldn't hear it even four feet away. But I would put these detachable speakers on either side of my head, <laughs> listening to music like the soundtrack from Purple Rain or Duran Duran Arena or whatever it happens to be. Bon Jovi, like the beginning of this show. Actually, not Bon Jovi. That was more of a car song. I, bon Jovi was a cassette tape for the car, not for the house. Don't ask. I don't know why. And, uh, you know, I just had such fond memories of this boombox. I just had to have it. And I'm glad I do. So that's my favorite tech product from the 80s. What about you, David? Also, uh, this also had a just one thing. It had a graphic equalizer on the front. Three, three channel graphic equalizer. Yep. Now, oh, when so these, you could shape the sound. <laughs> when these well, when when these sort of systems first hit the market over here in the UK, there was a um, comedy sketch show on called Not the Nine O'clock News. And plenty oh. of people I know still vividly remember this sketch to this day, where the uh, the one of the characters goes into a, um, a, a electronics store and he gets served by this guy in a you know a thin tie, all spotty, who clearly doesn't have a first clue what he's selling, but he's just trying to be a shiny salesman. And everyone remembers this line. He goes, he goes, well, what, what's good about this one? He goes, oh, this one's got a graphic equalizer, sir. And he goes, graphic equalizer, what's that for? And he, the guy goes, um, 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 well, that's for equalizing your graphics, isn't it? <laughs> yes, you had what else would it be for? Exactly. David, I'm going to drop you out of Skype and bring you back in after you restart Skype because you're really crackly and you've dropped out twice in the last two minutes. All right. Then. I'm bringing you back in in a second. So restart Skype on your end. Okay. And while we're waiting for David to come back, Mark, go ahead. What was your favorite tech product of the 80s? Well, you know, there were a number of things that I used to really enjoy back in the 80s. Um, but, you know, I think when I narrowed it all down, I had to come to the product that that I enjoyed the most and that gave me the most uh, use in my life. And so we're going back to 1985 initially. I had left Apple Computer and had used, obviously, the Lisa and the Macintosh. And, and uh, then I left and, and started my own business and wanted to get another had sold all my my Macintosh computers and didn't have one and so it was I was looking to buy a new computer and so it was 1989 and Apple came out with the Macintosh SE30 now the thing that the Macintosh SE30 had is they had basically kind of turbocharged the whole thing it it was basically a 2x uh, Macintosh 2x in the same kind of case as a Macintosh SE but they had changed out the, the new bus for the PDS slot so you could add an accelerator to it and they upgraded the RAM capability and so and then of course they they gave us the uh, 68030 which was why they called it the 30 the SE30 and so this unit yeah, that really, was that was a 25 megahertz processor wasn't it 
Yeah, yeah. So it started off, but then it could go up to, I believe, before it was done, they, they had kicked it up to uh, um, being able to do almost, I thought, 50, if I remember correctly. But um, it, they basically uh, upgraded they upgraded the whole thing, and it just worked a lot better than the units that I had used back at Apple with the Lisa and the original Macintosh. But the thing that really set this apart for me, uh, particularly at that time when I was uh, kind of going into graphic design and things of that nature, was Aldous PageMaker had just come out uh, about the, oh, yeah. the year before, I believe. And um, so I bought Aldous PageMaker and put that on, and that just changed everything because PageMaker was that first program that really uh, uh, took us, gave us the ability to really use the what you see, what you get, and and in a beautiful kind of user interface, and it was intuitive, and and so you know, of course, you already ha you had the Mac Paint, you had uh, Mac Write, you had a lot of the other things that came along with the Macintosh platform, but. Uh, they really made quite a an upgrade to the whole system when they came out with the SE30. And of course, we had one three. You know, it's one of its claims to fame is, of course, now they had the the 144 three and a half inch 144 drive in it. And of course, in this one, I had a 40 uh, megabyte. Wow, 40 megabytes hard drive in it. And yeah, uh, I think didn't the original SE have uh, two floppy drives? Yeah, you could get a two floppy drive configuration, or you could get a floppy drive and a 20 megabyte drive. Yeah, but the SE30, I think, uh, only had the single floppy and the hard drive. Had the single floppy, and then they put in a, uh, they gave you the ability to put either a 40 or an 80 megabyte drive in it. So Which I had at the, the time, one. That was huge. Yeah, yeah. And so you had better speed, you had uh, the hard drive capability of a 40 megabyte drive, and then, of course, you had the three and a half inch. And this thing was just, it was awesome. And uh, I just really loved using it. And of course, you came with uh, System 6. It began, it shipped with 603. And then by the end of it, you could run 8.1 in it before it, it uh, stopped. And then they also, but the thing is, you could, if you wanted to spend the money, you could buy uh, some accelerators and with that PDS slot and, and do some pretty interesting things with the system. So, you know, I, I found it very useful in my business. Um, of course, at that point, you were, we're not really looking at the Macintosh as a gaming platform. But for my business and for my home use and even with my, my kids at that stage, um, th it was probably the most useful, useful piece of hardware gadgetry that I had in my household. Well, a, a, little, bit of, a little bit of trivia. The, uh, the original Mac 2 was an 020, and then when they... When they put the 030, the Motorola 68000, hmm? they called it the, the 2X. Right. So when they did the same thing for the original Mac SE, they called it the SE30. They didn't call it the SEX, which right. Which, I thought which was I think, which I think was a, yeah, I think that was probably a good idea on Apple's part. But, uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is the, the, the Mac SE30 is probably one of the most loved Macintoshes of all times. People just love those Mac SE30. So, Guy. Yes. Favorite tech product of the 1980s. Okay. Um, I spent probably from 1985 until 1991, I had a, a government job with the State Department. I was traveling overseas quite a bit. And I he was, was taking an a assassin. Lot of, well, yeah. But I can't talk about that. Um, I had this death ray watch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like you. Bzzz. So I, I had a, a Pentax K1000, which is a, a basic 35 millimeter uh, point and shoot with you know standard lens that you could change out and all that. But it was manual everything, no autofocus, no. Yeah, I remember that no camera. Nothing. 
Yeah, and it was it was a great rugged camera, which is what I've been looking for because I was going to places that, you know, it wasn't like you could go around the corner and find some some place to fix your camera, like but, Beirut. Yeah, yeah, like Beirut, <laughs> East East Africa, you know, whatever. But what I found was a lot of times, like I, I went on safari in Kenya, and you know, I would see these great shots with you know lions or monkeys or whatever, and by the time I got the camera set up to take the picture, the shot was gone. You know, because they're not going to sit there and pose for me and wait for me to, you know, set all the crap on this camera. And when I went to Korea, it was during what I like to call riot season, where the students and the police all lose their minds and beat the crap out of each other for a, a <laughs> month or two. And, you know, there's tear gas flying everywhere, and tear gas hits me like a ton of bricks. And for whatever stupid reason, instead of being smart and staying in my hotel room, I decided I was going to go out and take pictures. So I'm out there trying to focus, you know, this manual focus camera, and there's tear gas, and it's just like, oh, I can't see anything that I'm doing. You know, and, the, the life of a political assassin is so sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got to deal with it. So I finally said, you know what, the hell with this, and I started looking at, at getting something different. And Place a I call had, to Q and said, Q, you got to hook me up. This is no good. This is no Shit. good. <laughs> I, I needed Q. So... um most of the magazines at the time were raving about this new camera from Canon called the EOS. So I went and looked at it and it was a little pricey. I don't remember how much it was at the time, but it was, it was within my budget. And I got a Canon EOS 750 and uh, two multi, what do they call that? Um, uh, where you can, you can adjust the focal length. You know, I had yeah. like a, I had like, like a, a 20, wait, a 28 like yeah, you yeah, yeah. Like a, like a zoom, telephoto zoom lens. Yeah, yeah. I had a 28 millimeter to 70 and a uh, 50 to 200, you know, two lenses. Okay. Yeah. And it was great. You know, I, I could just I'd pick it up, hit the button. It would automatically focus if it needed more light. The flash would put, I mean, it just did everything that I wanted it to do. So, and, and it, it served me well until probably the early 2000s when I got my first real digital camera. And it was it was just a real workhorse. And that, that that was my favorite bit of tech from the 80s. Cool. So, so far, we're definitely living up to the uh, term geekiest in our podcast. David, <laughs> rescue us. Tell this us is yours isn't a... geeky. Uh, I'm afraid it is. Uh, I'm afraid <laughs> it is. But this, this, this one, I hope, is it's going to be a little bit more interesting because it might not be something you're you're as familiar with. Mine is uh, is the first computer I ever owned, which was oh. Oh, yeah. I was uh, eleven years old, uh, and this was so this is this is turn of nineteen eighty, beginning of nineteen eighty one, and what I really wanted was an Atari twenty six hundred console, uh, which had just launched on the UK market, and uh, so I you know I sat down with my dad, and my birthday was coming up, and I said. You know, this is what I'd really like. I had a friend who had it. Hey, he had Space Invaders on it, and he used to go over there and play that, and it was great. And I thought this would be fantastic to have at home. And my dad said, "No, I'm not buying you a games console. You know, video games are a waste of time." He says, "But, but I'll get you a computer." Uh, and um, I thought, "Wow, well, that's that's going to be interesting." And I, I, at that point, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really know what a computer was, or or, or kind of what made it different from a video game. Uh, and uh, the computer I ended up getting was the Sinclair ZX81. Now, I heard the uh, side effect of that was it stunts your growth and makes you lose your hair. Is that true? <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I was expecting <laughs> the guy to start laughing way before that point. Uh, or, or maybe, or maybe, I was just I was gonna say I did play around with one, and all all it did to me was make me lose my hair. Yeah, but the difference was you maybe, ate one guy. It's <laughs> maybe it was something else in my formative years that made stunted my growth and made me lose my hair. I don't know. Um, Hanging out at head shops. We, you know, you know, we 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 tease the ones we love, David. Exactly. Um, but what's interesting about this is this this was the first computer in like a real revolution and and it was kind of focused on the UK. Sinclair was uh, one of the, he was he was what you would call a boffin. He he came out of Cambridge University and he decided he was he was kind of like the English Steve Wozniak because he decided he wanted to build a computer for the masses that was really cheap and so he designed these computers that were single circuit boards very low cost. But the difference between the, yeah, but the difference between his computers and the Apple was kind of a it was it was a bit of a British the difference between British and American you know the uh, the Apple II had color it was expandable you know it was a really clever design the ZX81 was a really clever design but it was black and white and it was cost <laughs> it cost literally I, I think I think it was seventy nine pounds ninety nine pence so it was about one hundred fifty hundred sixty dollars. Plugged into a TV, um, you plugged the cassette recorder into the side. It had one k of memory, uh, and about a three and a half megahertz processor in. And they really, really um, designed it to be very, very functional um, and do quite a lot. But in a really, really compact, small design, it had a membrane keyboard because it only had one k of memory. It was actually quite hard to program it because. You had to basically run the display and everything in that 1K and also wow. be able to put programs in. So it had this thing where rather than type commands in, you would press you would press the keys and it would fill in the commands. Basically, the keyboard was really dense with all these different commands. So if you wanted to type, you know, the simple Hello World program to, uh, in BASIC, you know, which was, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, 10 print hello 20 go to 10 yes. when you were type when you were typing you would not type out um uh, print hello you would press the p button and it would fill in print for you um and then you would put the well, quotes what, didn't you it. have to hold down like some kind of option key yeah, that's right you basically you were doing all these shifts and options and this sort of thing to bring these bring these commands up and it was kind of it was interpreting what you wanted to do as you typed so it knew what was it was almost like you know if you used um, a modern day um you know, coding system like uh, like the Apple one, it will actually um, correct the code on the fly if you try and type in something that doesn't make sense at that point. Well, this was doing that as well, and the reason it was doing that is because it was storing, rather than storing all of the program as text, it was actually storing uh, little chunks in the memory, which were very memory efficient, pointing to pointers in the ROM, which was saying, this is what this function does. So it was that you were able to put in quite long programs into this 1K of memory and make it do things. Actually, everybody wanted the RAM pack, the 16K RAM pack, to actually to actually uh, play useful games and run useful software on. And the the RAM pack just plugged in the back, and it was just an edge connector. So these these machines were famous. If you just press them the wrong way, the RAM pack would disconnect, and the whole thing would reset, oh, and you'd lose all your work. Oh, wow. So they, you know they were quite um, you know they were quite temperamental. But this really kickstarted the UK computer revolution. The sequels of the ZX81 was a color machine called the Spectrum. And um, if you've heard of Rare, who who 
um, sure. you know, Donkey Pro Kong, Nintendo, Donkey Kong, and all that sort of thing, and uh, are obviously now very big game developers. They started their work on the ZX81, the Spectrum. That's where the guys who ran Rare came from. I've got so, a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a uh, a big book. Um, I'm forgetting who wrote it now, and I should because I've actually talked to him in, via email a few times. And he wrote this book called The History of Video Games, and it goes up to right around 2000, 2001. So it's very incomplete at this point. I mean, like Grand Theft Auto is not even mentioned in it, and that's probably the biggest thing that's happened in video games. Well, maybe that and Halo and a few other games in the last decade, and it doesn't cover any of that. But it really goes into depth, and Rare is one of the companies that they profile, and they talk about programming on that computer day. But it's, it's yeah. an interesting read. I love the book. It it it. What interests me is, you know, everyone talks about the Apple II and, um, you know, the stuff that came out of the states. And the thing is, the Apple the Apple cost what was it, it was about a thousand dollars, something yeah. like that. Yeah. This was like this was like a hundred, you know, seventy seventy eighty pounds. The the Spectrum is about one hundred twenty nine hundred thirty nine pounds. So this really was bargain basement computing. And considering the limitations of the, these machines, I mean, the Spectrum in particular was around for years. And um, many, you know, many quite big game franchises got got started on the Spectrum, and um, you know, it's just interesting to see how over here we had this sort of kind of cheap bargain basement backroom bedroom type of culture doing this sort of thing, whereas over in the states it was a, it was a bit more professional. Here's the uh, book I was just telling you about. It's called The Ultimate History of Video Games. Uh, it's from Stephen L. Kent, and it was published in 2001. It's a big to... book too. I mean, it it's hefty. It's like six hundred pages. In fact, it's six hundred eight pages, and uh, you can pick it up on eBay really cheap, ten bucks or less. And yeah. if you're into video games at all, this for anybody, pick this book up. It's really, really well written, and I mean, it covers everything from uh, the pinball stuff all the way up to the release of the original Xbox and PS2. You know, Nintendo, of course, is heavily covered in there, and Atari, and it's it's a fantastic book. Yep. I'm wondering I'm if he pick... was in. I wonder if he was impacted by the development of the the TRS-80 in the states. You know, kind of going down that line of kind of an all-in-one, plug it into your TV type scenario. Probably the TRS-80 was, of course, a Radio Shack computer here in right. the United States. Handy, yeah. And the TRS-80, I actually have a, a tiny bit of history with it. Um, there was a uh, game called uh, Dungeons of Dragobar or something like that. And it was kind of vector graphics. It was uh, cave crawling, basically. And you had to tape out the commands like A for attack or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you're going down this, um, I don't know, a cavern type of thing and fighting wizards and spiders. And I remember a friend of mine named Rob Gay the most unfortunate name out there, um, <laughs> had a TRS-80, and he used to play this game, and I used to go over to his house to play it. And I, I was captivated by this. Uh, I hated the controls, because quite often, you know, when you're young, you hit the wrong key, and of course you get killed. And you're like, ah! But, uh, I mean, like, M, enter to move. M, 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 M. <laughs> Turn left, TL. That sort of thing. But it really captured my imagination. I remembered it for years and years and years later. Of course, I didn't know what it was. Uh, it, I didn't know the name of the game. I didn't remember what game console it played on. Of course, it wasn't a game console. It was a TRS-80. 
and uh, yeah. back when we did the iAtari Mac, and that was a a mod that Chad Perry and I did of an Atari Twenty Six Hundred turning it into a Macintosh, which I still have. Um, somebody that had watched that show suggested that we do a TRS eighty mod, and I said I think that's a good idea. Uh, in other words, taking an, a TRS eighty and turning it into a modern computer. But I don't have a TRS eighty, and uh, but I know it was a a good computer at the time. And he wrote back, "If I send you one, will you do it?" And I wrote back, "If you send me one, that'd be cool." But I can't guarantee that we're going to do another video show because this took a lot longer than we thought, and you know, I we probably won't do another one. But he went and sent it to me anyways, and this was a brand new, wow. in the box. The box looked like crap, but. It was still wrapped in plastic. That was worth something. And it came... I still have it, too. Uh, and it came with a game. And it came with that game that I was telling you about. And uh, I couldn't believe it. It blew me away. Uh, I still have that TRS-80. I don't have it in the box anymore because the box was, like I said, it was really wore out. And I don't know where this guy got it, but he said that he had had a couple of them. So he'd send me one if I ever decided to use it for anything. And he just shipped it to me. And I, I couldn't believe it. It's literally a brand new TRS-80. It was never used until I hooked it up. <laughs> yeah, but well, there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities between um, uh, the ZX and the TR. They're both kind of using the basic interpreter. Although, as David was saying, there's a there's kind of a unique version that was used on the ZX, right, David? That well, yeah, it was their own basic. They didn't. Um... They developed it for themselves, so it was right. specialist just to Sinclair. And uh, again, right. the TRS eighty was six hundred dollars. Right. You know, right. so it was it was quite a big quite a big uh, gap in price. I don't think there was anything on the uh, on the American market that that was comparative in price until kind of the Commodore sixty four came along. Really, right. uh, the Atari computer, the the first Atari computer. No, that was expensive too. Yeah. Yeah. So, Guy Searle, we're going to start yes. with you. Your Least favorite or horrible memories of a tech product from the 1980s? Okay. Um, oh, it's so hard to choose. There were, there were so many, so, there so, so many. many bad ones. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with IBM and Sears Prodigy online service. <laughs> oh, that's wow. a good one. Yeah, that's a which good one. Was, which was just truly atrocious. You know, the, the whole reason why... I even signed up with them at the time was they gave you free if you signed up for like a year a 2400 baud modem and you know of course you know nowadays that sounds ridiculous but back then you know 2400 baud was about as good as you could get now this was you towards know, the end of the 80s yes yes the only problem with that was you know it worked and you could sign on to the service but you had to go through a commercial for some product, either from IBM or Sears, every time you would go to a different page, oh, and and it was just glacially slow, and just probably one of the the worst experiences in my life as far as being online. And I remember that um, I think I used the service well because I, I was still traveling overseas at that time, but I think I used the service for maybe a total of one month to one and a half months before I finally just, you know, gave it up as a bad cause and, and switched over to AOL. But, you know, once that one year was up, you, you couldn't get me off that service fast enough. <laughs> so, Mark, worst 
80s product for you? Well, I had to think about this. You know, there are a lot of products, but the product that I chose is really the worst for me because it was a pretty good product overall, but it, it was frustrating as heck for me as a Mac user. And um, long about 1985, uh, Intel developed their i386, 80386 processor, which, you know, was quite an upgrade from the uh, the 286 yep. previous generation. And then, you know, as we moved a little bit farther down the road, we remember that Windows, you know, which had come out earlier, um, began to uh, update their their uh, versions from 1.0 to 2.0, and then, of course, at the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, they had uh, 3.0 and then 3.1.1. But come on, see, get to the but, damn point, Mark. But we don't need a history lesson, Jesus. But 3.0 <laughs> and a and an Intel 386 processor was kind of the bane of my existence because I had to do a lot of work um, with people because <laughs> I started my own business that were using Windows machines, and so I'm trying to to do a lot of help with people and, and consulting with people and they're, they're beginning to run uh, Windows with 3.0 and they've got Word Perfect on there and and then of course uh, uh, Microsoft Works and uh, all kind of configuration problems and uh, trying to make a living doing that and it just it just was the bane of my existence all the p configuration problems and having to redo all of the uh, operating system installs and trying to get things to work together and peripherals to work together. It just uh, was a nightmare for me. So I would come home to my little Oasis with my little SE30 and and do all my own personal work for my business and, uh, you know, tried to make a living servicing people who had Windows machines. And so while the, the, the 386 was a great processor and they began to make some changes in Windows when they got the 3-on-1, it just... It just drove me up the wall. <laughs> that that does actually remind me, um, back in those sort of days, because Windows was kind of like a program that ran over DOS. Yep. And if you didn't yeah. get the memory, if you didn't, I mean, Mac users, you wouldn't know anything about this, but if you didn't get the memory right, it just wouldn't run properly, and you would end oh, up. it would just shut down. Crafting text files, trying to get, um, you know, a few extra kilobytes of memory. There was all these different types of memory in DOS that you could. There was higher memory and upper memory, and all these things, and you would. You would tweak these things by hand and reboot over and over again, trying to get the right memory configuration. It was terrible. So, Mark, let me, was, let me clear it. It was such it, a terrible program. It was so such it a was, terrible program. It's a 386 computer you hated most, or Windows 3.0? The combination of the two, because <laughs> the promise, the promise of the 386 was great, but you really couldn't do anything with it because Windows 3.0, which was supposed to, everybody thought, oh, I've got this graphical interface now, I can do all these things. But when you put the two together, it just, it, they just work like crap. However, I will add to it, when they came out with 3.1.1, a lot of things changed and things improved. And I did enjoy the Windows machine, at least from the DOS standpoint, because there were some good games that began to come out. But uh, as a business, it just sucked. Now, yeah, they, should have put, they should have put Ubuntu on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> having, having said that, it's probably worth pointing out to anybody who's a PC listener from that period is that Windows 3 was like Microsoft's real breakthrough products and turn them into the company that we know and love today that's right and, so and 311 was good 311 they made a lot of improvements and and you know things improved quite a bit yeah that was my first experience with was uh 311 with windows yeah so david your uh 
I'm going to piggyback, and this is going to be our pick because I yes, know what yours is, and uh, it's this is basically the same thing. I'm sure we have similar stories. Yeah, absolutely. One of the great things about the 80s was the rise of portable music. We had the, the wonderful Sony Walkman, and before you know it, everybody was walking around with a, a personal cassette player with all their tunes, uh, and it was great. And growing up in that environment was fantastic. The, the idea that you could... Whenever you're traveling or if you were, if you were you know, just going somewhere, you could have your music with you was fantastic. Very liberating. However, <laughs> if you were... <laughs> That's a big however right yeah, there. <laughs> however, uh, the Sony Walkman was a fantastic product. It was brilliant. Like, like, like many things Sony, it was incredibly well-engineered, very, very reliable, uh, power-efficient, but also heinously expensive yes for and and if you're there as a teenager in the 80s there was no way unless you were very very fortunate that you were going to get a sunny walkman so i had and i'm sure you did as well tim um i had a succession of cheap crappy personal cassette players crappy being and, the the optimal term there and this was the problem they were these were mass market clones um, they were all built down to a, a pretty low price. They came with terrible, terrible headphones. They normally took four to six AA batteries that they would chew through really quickly. I, I mean, I had some real horrors. I had, I had, I had uh, cassette players that would only would only only had a, a drive motor in them that would go forwards, so you could play or you could fast forward, but you couldn't rewind. So if you had if you wanted to rewind your tape, you had to turn it over. Yep. Fast forward the other way, then turn it back again to see if you got to the right place. And then if you hadn't, you had to turn it over and do it again. And, of course, every time you're doing that, you're killing the battery. It, yep. was, it was just horrific. Yep. No and, no rewind button. <laughs> yeah. I, I had ones that didn't. That, that basically just had a spring-loaded door on top that you didn't actually load the tape in properly. So if you, if you banged it the wrong way, the tape would, would fall out. I had ones that chewed tapes up on a regular uh, basis. That, that was my biggest concern. I had, I remember two different brands I had. I had a Sony spelled X-O-N-Y. <laughs> that was the second piece of, biggest piece of crap that I had. Not the number one. This was number two. And the problem with that one is it had a radio built in and it had a cassette deck. And like you, David, it didn't have a rewind button. It had to play, fast forward, and stop. And to eject yeah. it, you literally lifted up the door yourself. And the tapes, the, the door kept jingling open to the point that I had to wrap a rubber band around it. Yeah. And yeah. it was either on or it was off. And if it was on and there was no cassette playing, it played the radio. So if I wanted to fast forward it, the radio would kick on every time. Oh, I hate it. It was just terrible. And then, but that, that was the second to the worst. The worst was the Sanyo that I had. S-A-N-Y-O. Sanyo. A Sanyo. It was made by some hip hop guys. Oh my God. It was, it, dude, it was just, it was the biggest piece of crap. And it, the, here's the thing about the San-Yo. It had this metallic cover on it, on the, on the cassette door itself and it looked like a really high quality and this was the replacement my parents got me for a birthday present from the x-o-n-y one this the sony <laughs> and they said well we got you a sanyo so we know it's going to be better 
And, you know, even then I looked at it and said, this isn't a Sanyo. Mom, I don't think they spell Sanyo. <laughs> There's no dash in Sanyo. <laughs> and it, it drove me crazy, but, of course, it looked like a nice one. So I, I couldn't fault him for that. And the headphones actually sounded pretty good. Here was the problem. Nothing worked hardly ever. The buttons were almost completely recessed. And there was no space between the buttons. And they were so small that you, you go to hit play and it didn't work. Uh, it actually would let you record, which was great, except the mechanism that told it that this is a blank tape or not a blank tape. You remember the little tabs on yeah. a cassette? Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. If the tab is so, gone... So you wouldn't record over it. Right. If the tab is gone, you can't record over it. Well, this cassette player slash recorder didn't have the ability to check to see if it was a, a tape that you can record over. So oh, the play no. button and the record button were right next to each other. Oh, wow. So you know what happened quite a bit with my cassettes. Yeah, how many mm, of those did yeah. you ruin? Well, eventually I learned don't play your original. Go out, buy some blank tapes, make a dub, and use the dub in there. Yeah. Oh, that used to drive. Oh, it just ticked me off. But if that wasn't worse or bad enough, the worst thing was every three or four tapes, it would literally eat it. And yeah. it would take. 20 to 30 minutes to get the tape out of this cassette deck. I mean, it was the worst piece of crap I had ever had. You eventually throw it against the wall? Dude, I've looked on the internet for both the XONY Sanyo, or the Sony and the Sanyo S-A-N-Yo. I haven't found any information on either of them on the internet. Everything no, is on the internet. They committed yeah, the, seppuku. There was, so, there was so many of these things. And the thing is, I, had, I must have had four or five different models because you would get one, you'd be frustrated with it, it would degrade. I mean, I remember most of most of the ones I had, what would happen is over time the volume controls were so cheaply made that every time you touched them they would generate a massive amount of static. Yes. And eventually they would just be, the, the thing would just be emitting static with the music all the time. <laughs> At that point you had to replace it anyway. Yes. Or the heads would wear or something like that. The capstones used to go, go bad as well. Some of them, the capstones used to have like really bad rubber on that would kind of go gloopy. Yeah. The whole and mechanism kind of would just posits, begin to break. Yeah, the whole thing would, yeah, that would, would, uh, would, uh, degrade so you would you would buy go out and buy another one and again you would be hoping maybe this one would be decent and uh, eventually when i was about uh 17 or 18 i remember i, was, I actually worked for a summer in a hi-fi shop and i saw they had a, a sony walkman in there and it was it was the the best looking sony walkman i i'd ever seen it was um absolutely tiny made of metal oh i remember that was, one i know yeah, it was no, i had that yeah. one it the was not much grill. bigger, than, yeah, not much bigger than a, than the cassette tape. It literally yep. could not have been any smaller. Had auto reverse. It had logic controls, mm -hmm. all motorized mechanisms. Dolby BNC on it. It was absolutely fantastic. And um, when I when I finished that summer, my parents actually bought me this this uh, this Sony Walkman as as a, as a gift before I went away to university. And I had that thing for for ages. It was, and it, and, it, and at that point you realise it's like a real lesson in. It's always worth paying a little bit extra for something of quality. Absolutely, rather than buying a succession exactly. of cheap machines. Yep, because that was that was the business and and the the real deal. The nineteen eighties were big for me. Uh, like I said, you know, I my formative years were the eighties. I've got a lot of different tech products that I could have picked. Um, there's a lot of products in the nineties. Um, not even going into computers because my Mac dot com, my the flagship that geekiest show ever, 
ever falls under um started in 95 so there's a lot of stuff in 95 i if we were going to go 95 i would definitely have to say believe it or not david a sony discman i had the most dangerous discman in the world that if you opened it it would literally launch the cd player spinning at you know 3000 <laughs> rpm at you nice I that at, was made by M. Like no, that was that, that was made by Sony, S-O-N-Y. And I worked at the post office at the time, and I can't tell you how many times that I went to open it up instead of stopping the disc first and letting it spin all the way down, that this thing would just fly out at me. Oh, it scared the crap out of me. I've never had a personal music player that literally scared me. Oh, anyways, there was a lot of different products in the 80s, and... We'd really like to hear what you guys have have to say about the eighties. What do you, what was your big products of the eighties that you really enjoyed? Or better yet, the ones that you hated. Thank God that those are gone. Uh send those Dead and gone. Absolutely. Send them to Tim at mymac.com and I'll share your thoughts with the rest of the guys and we'll talk about it on a future show. Uh one thing I do want to say before we wrap this episode up, if you're into the eighties, my favorite podcast is a show called Stuck in the Eighties. Do a search up on iTunes and you'll find it. Stuck in the 80s. I love that podcast. Uh, if I was going to do an 80s podcast, that's pretty much what I would do. And they're doing such a good job that I don't feel the need to do an 80s podcast. <laughs> it's a brilliant show. I, I'm sure you guys have never heard it, but if you're into the 80s, David, I think you would even like it. And because yeah. it's covering the 1980s, it's timeless. So go back and start at the beginning. I think they're up to like show 180 now, something like that. A lot of them. And listen to them. They're just, they're, it's a really good podcast. I really enjoy the guys on there. Um, let's see. What else do we got? I think that's about it, guys. Yeah. That's, that's do you our... think, um, I mean, I mean, obviously talking about those gadgets and, and the things, the things we love about them, do you think, one thing that was good about the 80s was this stuff was new. Nobody had ever done it before. Now what we get is a kind of a refinement of things that have gone before. And it's fairly rare to get something genuinely new and in innovative. And maybe it's just rose-tinted spectacles. But to me, the 80s were all about brand new things all the time. It's like every year there was something I new, think, something different. I think companies took risks back then. I think that uh, companies weren't expected to show growth every single quarter. Uh, I think yeah. Wall Street... And, and all the different Wall Street type of, you know, financial institutions gave companies the benefit of the doubt when they were coming out with a new product or something that was totally different. And they let them grow it, even if it started slowly. Uh, the, the backers of these companies understood that, you know, this is something new and it's going to take a while take to time. catch on. Yeah. And they had yeah. the time to do that. I think nowadays... Wall Street's at the point where they make the decisions in almost every company that's out there. And then if they're not showing sustained growth every Within single quarter. six months after it comes out. No. Two weeks after it comes out. If they're not showing sustained growth as a company, they're dead. And I think that's the biggest problem nowadays, David. Yeah. That it, being as good as you were this time last quarter isn't good enough for anybody on Wall Street. Just because you're making a profit isn't good enough. You have to show growth and growth and growth and growth. And more and more companies, because of that, are hesitant to come out with new products. Why would you want to risk a brand new product? It could take your company down because Wall Street yeah. doesn't like, you know, oh, I don't like this. And it's the stock tanks. And next thing you know, everybody's fired and the company's being sold. One of the things for me is if it, 
we had so many pioneers in the Silicon Valley in the 80s that were, and they, they kind of transitioned from the 70s and then the 80s, they really took off in, 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 in chip technology and the development of new technologies to utilize those chips and the, and the reduction in the size of the chips. And those things, those people were pioneers and they really went out and they, and we don't have any people like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and, and many others that were in that era that, that just said, you know what, I don't care what everybody else is doing, this is what I want to do, and they just went out and they, they cut a path and they were pioneers in the field. I would love to see that again. Well, I think we see I, that. I, I think that we see that being done with applications and with games and with software, not so much absolutely. hardware. Um, because the, yeah. the barrier of entry there is a lot less than coming out with some new gizmo. Yeah. And I think that, so you see a lot of innovation on stuff that we already have. Yeah, I mean, there are a few people around like that. If you look at, not so much in the computing industry, but if you look at somebody like um, Sir James Dyson, who invented the uh, Cyclone vac Vacuum Cleaner. Yep. He's... Um, very innovative. You know, he, very innovative, and, you know, he he... he, he he came up with a way of doing something that everybody knew how to do completely and utterly differently. But it, and, also uh, look in this, this is the last decade, the last 10 years. And I think we've had a lot of innovative stuff. You go back 10 years, we didn't have iPods. We didn't have iPhones. We didn't have flat panel TVs like we do today. High definition was something still in the future. We didn't have high speed internet. Well, I did, but most people didn't. Um, we didn't have very cheap color printers. We didn't have cheap digital cameras. Um, there's a lot of things that started in the last 10 years that we kind of take for granted now. And you could still trace a lot of those innovations back to the 80s. But to say that they're not really innovating anymore, Mark, I, I think that's kind of disingenuous, to be honest. I think a lot of things, and not just products, but what we're doing right now, we're literally recording a show we're all across this globe talking to each other live, recording this, and people all across the globe is going to be listening to this in a few hours. Yeah, that's I, I, innovation that you could not have happened 10 years ago, and that's because of uh, relatively cheap broadband, uh, high storage devices with a lot of gigabytes and terabytes. I mean, those are all innovative things that have come out that we couldn't have imagined 10 years ago. Well, I think definitely online and through the Internet, there's innovation taking place. But, you know, the, the theme of our show was going back to, like, gadgets of the 80s. And, and to me, the hardware innovation and, the, and I, I think probably what I'm more referring to is, like, the pioneering, the things that were really being pioneered. A lot of the technologies and a lot of the foundations that were being pioneered in the 80s we're still adding on to today. But definitely there's a lot of innovation from a software and from, from an online and within the cloud type of a scenario. But, you know, in terms of the silicon and, and the development that came from, from those types of technologies, seems like we don't have that same type of uh, pioneering going on. But maybe it's because a lot of the foundational technologies are still being used today. Yeah, if something's not broke, you don't need to fix it necessarily. But I, I do think that we're still getting a lot of innovation. You look at the little flip video camera that's in HD. I mean, it's an amazing little product. David, I'm sure you could come up with some stuff that's innovative that we didn't have 10 years ago that we kind of take for granted now. Well, yeah, I mean, look at cell phones, for instance. Absolutely. You know, we, we, 
that people forget what it was like before you had the cell phone. You yeah, know, go you back were, and watch uh, Miami Vice. Yeah, and look at the you know, cell phone bag that they were carrying around talking but, in their but, Ferrari. But, he, he, but even before that, I mean, you just... If you if you were moving around, you were out of contact. Nobody could get hold of you. They didn't know where you were. You know now nowadays we're so used to uh, those of us who commute to. You know I did it tonight. Get in the car. Um, I don't need to to let my wife know before I leave work what time I'm going to be coming home. I just as soon as I'm in the car, I call and say I'm on the way home. It's going to be twenty minutes. Or a texter. Yeah, exactly. No, not when I'm driving, but but yeah, absolutely. That, well, that, you say that the, now. <laughs> The, uh, the the fact that, that we're effectively always in contact all of the time. And not is, just with each it, other, but with these new devices, David, we're connected to the Internet. I mean, we literally live on the Starship Enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. We, we have that's access. where the innovation is. To absolutely, and, I, and that's what I mean. I, I think that it's disingenuous to say that they're not doing stuff like that now because we have computers in our pocket that has access to a treasure trove of information that we could not have imagined in the 80s i mean i could literally go sit in my backyard pull out my iphone and look up a disease and a cure without within seconds right imagine doing that in the 80s you couldn't have done it we are i mean the other day i was in the middle of london i need to get to a meeting pull up my iphone uh brought google maps set it into compass mode and then literally used it like like the sort of things you would see in a movie in the 80s yeah to Star actually Trek. actually get to where i wanted to go with the little flashing dot showing me where to go yeah um but but what i was trying to say was that uh, all of these things are incremental they're all building very much on what's gone before so you get the cell phone and then you get the internet and then there's brought together and you don't it's fairly rare that you get the big step changes. The iPhone was kind of a step change because it really transformed uh, mobile phones from what they were before into something that, that you know that's a, a pocket computer. But those changes are fairly rare. Whereas it seems like in the eighties we were getting more radical step changes. We were getting tape than CD, exactly. and it seemed to be all happening more quicker. And and I I do think there is something in what you say, uh, Tim, is that. People were prepared to invest more and risk more yep. in the 80s than they do nowadays. So that's our show this week. If you enjoyed Geeky's show ever, we'd appreciate it if you subscribe in iTunes. And better yet, go up to iTunes and write a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. The folks that bring you this podcast also bring you a few other ones. We do the MyMac.com podcast. You can find that in iTunes or simply go to MyMac.com. We also have a Sam's Cool Picks podcast. That's part of the MyMac.com family. You'll find a link at MyMac.com for that. If you have an iPhone and you're into gadgets, it's a very nice, easy, updated, two or three times a week, two to three minute podcast. And trust me, if you subscribe to that podcast, you're going to be spending money all the time because Sam always finds a really cool stuff to talk about and that you're going to want. We've got some upcoming new podcasts, including one about photography, so... We'll give you guys the announcement of that here in just a couple weeks. And if you're interested in doing a podcast yourself and you've just kind of worried about getting started and where you're going to get it posted and how you're going to promote it, let us know. We're always looking for new podcast ideas. Even if there's a podcast out there already talking about the subject you're interested in, there's still room for more and new and different. So simply send an email to tim at mymac.com and we'd appreciate it. And we'd also appreciate it 
appreciate any feedback on the show. Feedback at MyMac.com. And uh, I get those emails and I forward them over to David and Guy and Mark if he's going to be on the show and anybody else. And we'd appreciate uh, some feedback. So thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.